Well, hey, I did it again. I pushed the wrong button. There I get. I get two button pushy. Welcome, you guys. Wednesday night, and what a show it's going to be. I have looked into spontaneous human combustion for years, and it has terrified me. It's a, to me, it's the thing of nightmares. Um, you know, you're, you're sitting there watching TV, you know. So I'm, I'm at the age where I get hot flashes. So, you know, you're sitting there watching TV, and... Uh, all of a sudden, you might feel a hot flash. The next thing you know, your best friend's coming in with the police the next day. And all they find is a pair of is one of your tennis shoes and part of your leg. And everything else is okay in the house. It's your pile of ashes. So that's terrifying because you don't know when it's going to happen or if it'll happen to you. But there is, a, you know, I did some research uh, the last couple of days. And there is some scientific research say, you know, where they're, they're starting to kind of play around with trying to figure out how this stuff's done. Anyway, our guest tonight, Larry Ar Larry E. Arnold, has written a book about spontaneous con combustion, and I've been excited to have him on for a couple weeks here. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring him in, and we can start the show, because I really want to get rolling. Hello, Larry. Hi, Charlotte. Greetings to you and your listeners tonight. Good, good evening. I am so excited to have you on. It was like I said in the intro... This stuff scares me to death. <laughs> scares a lot of people, a lot and of people, particularly in the fire service industry. Absolutely. I ran into spontaneous combustion, not human combustion, a few years ago on an investigation in, in the Placerville area. And they had had their video cameras running and he had a pilot, a, a stack of towels on this table. And all of a sudden they, they burst into flame. And he thought it was a, he thought maybe the ghost was doing it or whatever. But luckily, at that time, we had a um, paramedic working with us on the team, so she was well, you know, versed with, with with fire and stuff. So she was able to narrow it down to spontaneous combustion. But it's scary stuff, you know. Tell me about you and how you got interested in all this. How we got interested in this? That goes back several decades. Um, we were always above our reading level in elementary school and we always had a curiosity about things that kind of fit outside the conventional boxes that people tended to think within uh kind of a iconoclastic nature that we had when we went into junior high school we found a um some books about paraphenomena uh, strange phenomena on the bookshelves um particularly about ufos which is kind of strange to have in our junior high school library read those gave book reports and most of our fellow students kind of thought, man, Larry's a little weird there, but, you know, he's okay, we guess. And at that time, we, we, we um, as part of the book club in eighth grade, we purchased for 35 cents a book by Frank Edwards called Stranger Than Science. He was a newspaper man, and in that book, he had a lot of strange stories, some of which sounded really, really weird. 
and some just just curious but one of the chapters in his book was titled um, incredible cremations mm -hmm. and specifically he wrote about a case that happened in, in st petersburg florida in 1951 that burned up or burned down mary hardy research we just wonder whether that case was, you know, fiction or if Mr. Edwards as a newspaper man had reported the story straight as news. Uh, when we left the engineering profession in the early 70s, we went down to the Library of Congress to pull up some um, microfilm of the newspapers from St. Pete at that time to see whether it made front page news or whether maybe Frank Edwards had, had made up this story. And what we discovered was that the St. Pete Times and Tampa Tri Tribune newspapers had covered this, the death of Mary Harding Weezer as front page news. And it was very strange, very curious. For weeks had mystified all the investigating authorities, the detectives assigned to the case. And eventually we would actually meet the um, one of the police officers who was assigned on his first day of duty as a member of the St. Petersburg Police Department to secure the premises while the investigations inside unfolded. And Walter Tipton told us that at that time, he and his fellow officers and the investigators had not a clue. They had no idea what they were dealing with inside Mary Weezer's apartment. Because what they found on the morning of July 2, 1951 was a 175-pound woman who overnight had burned down to a few pounds of calcine vertebrae, one foot left intact inside its unburned satin slipper, a head that was described at the time as having shrunk to the size of an orange or a teacup, and basically the rest of her body was dry powder, an environment that exhibited no other significant heat or flame damage. The investigators considered arson murder. They found no evidence of that. They ruled out suicide. Um, they could find no identifiable external ignition sources beyond the fact that Mary was a known cigarette smoker. But all the original investigators said this body was burned so thoroughly, so completely in such a localized environment that a drop cigarette doesn't make any sense. At that time, um, vacationing in St. Pete was Dr. Walter Marion Krogman, who was a renowned forensic anthropologist who had taken especially in conducting experiments of what it takes to burn up a human body under laboratory conditions. Dr. Krogman obviously took a professional and personal interest in the research case at that time and concluded that it had a number of mysteries that he could not explain. There was the apparent intense heat that would have been necessary, supposedly, to consume her body to the extent that it was found. Couldn't find a source for that incredible heat. There was the incredible localization of the fire. Um, newspapers, stacks of newspapers, bedding, linens near the chair in which Mrs. Weezer immolated were not burned or damaged by the fire. And yet her body itself was so thoroughly burned that she literally had to be shoveled out of the apartment in St. Pete. Wow. And we had the, we had the opportunity uh, as our investigations evolved in this case to actually meet with one of the two firefighters who handled the shovels that took out her ashes. And um, he told us that in his professional opinion and in his decades of firefighting experience, he had never before nor since encountered a fire scene like the one that he had to shovel the ashes out of Mrs. Reese's apartment. And his conclusion was that Mrs. Reese had to have died by spontaneous human combustion. So that, that got us tipped it. Now, was this a one-off, absolutely unique case in which there might have been some kind of an external 
source available that the experts at the time couldn't discover. We couldn't dismiss the case. It certainly piqued our curiosity even more, the curiosity that, that began when we were in eighth grade. And then we got a tip to a case that also had a Pennsylvania connection. You're talking to us here in, from Pennsylvania. And Mrs. Reeser was a Pennsylvania native, even though she met her flaming fate down in St. Pete in 51. Well, we got tipped off to another possible case here in Pennsylvania, our home state, that involved an elderly physician in the northern tier of Pennsylvania. His name was Dr. Bentley. And it was suggested that he might have been a victim of spontaneous human combustion. Very interested, very curious. Took a three and a half hour drive from our home in Harrisburg up to northern Pennsylvania and started probing around. And what we discovered changed our life at that time because the way in which Mr. Bentley was consumed fit the classic definition of what history has called spontaneous human combustion, an almost wholly immolated body, skeleton included, at a fire scene that is significantly devoid of the anticipated, expected high heat and flame dam damage that one would expect to find out one of these amazing fire fatalities. Is it true um, with these things that that um, there's hardly, I mean, there's, there's hardly any damage around the person or in the walls in the house is usually the lower part of the walls where, where they were burning, there's no damage. It's usually up above them where, where the fire damage is. That is correct. Um, the fire behaves normally, normally in air quotes, up to a point. Um, there's enough heat apparently generated that um, the carbonization rises to the ceiling and then kind of flows down the walls. But in many cases, that line of demarcation where the carbonization, the sooting stops, is about three to three and a half feet above the floor. Um, this happens in case after case, which is kind of curious because it seems to be independent of the volume um, of the burned chamber, if you will, where the victim um, actually is consumed. Um, there are other typical things that one finds on a classic SHC fire scene that is atypical of a conventional fire fatality burn site. Um, when the body burns normally, there's a horrible noxious odor at the fire scene. Firefighters have told this to us again and again and again. But on what history has defined as these very localized, intense combustion scenes that history has labeled spontaneous human combustion that we prefer to call sudden human cremation cases. Um, there's either no aroma present or there's a sweet, redolent smell. In, in the Bentley case, it was described as actually honey-sweet aroma that was in his home. Uh, that's just one of the, the many mysteries of this phenomenon and one of the characteristics that sets it apart from a conventional fatal fire scene. That's interesting. I was reading, you know, and the, there's theories about people, like the, like the age groups, that, that the people that end up getting you know, burned, so to say, uh, that, that end up getting burned is usually people that are like 50 or older, and a lot of them don't have uh, real active lifestyles. When this was a, if you pardon the expression, a hotly debated subject back in the sure. 17 and early 1800s, um, those who believed that it happened said that all the victims of this phenomenon had to be female, elderly, sedentary, alcoholics, besotted mm -hmm. individuals, um, overweight, and they were either French women or German frauleins, 
depending on which nationality was investigating right. the, the, the subject. We have, our research has uncovered some 500 cases at this point that fit the definition of SpawnCom, and those criteria we have dismissed. Okay. In, term, in terms of gender, 50% um, of our database are female, 47% are male, and 3% history just doesn't tell us the gender of the victim. Um, the elderly are more prone to experience the phenomenon than are the young, and that's understandable. If this is a biological process, something that happens inside the body as the body ages, clearly it starts to deteriorate. So we would expect to see something as bizarre as spontaneous human combustion happening to the elderly population. The oldest in our victim is a 114-year-old holy man from India, but we do have young people in their in their 20s and their teens, and the youngest that appears to fit the definition would be a six-week-old toddler who burned mysteriously in his crib. There are people who are there are people who smoke, there are victims who drink, but there are also teetotalers and people who have sworn off cigarettes for decades or have never smoked in their lives. That is very interesting. Very interesting. So have you um, personally gone out on some of these cases and seen mm -hmm. the actual remains? This is what sets our research apart from, from the naysayers, the, the, the skeptics, and the, the many, many debunkers that have tried to rip our research to shreds over the decades. Um, we don't sit in an armchair and speculate about what happens at these fire scenes whenever and whenever it's possible um, we have gone out to these sites ourselves boots on the ground eyes at the scene we have been to several of these incredible fire sites before they've been significantly cleaned up by the um you know people who do do the mop up afterwards wow we've, we've made every effort possible to talk to the first responders identify and speak with as many of them as we can to speak to the local authorities and when they tell us what they have told us that we document in our book of blaze and we'll be sharing with your listeners tonight some of those mm -hmm. interviews um, that they are completely befuddled mystified and in their decades often cases decades of firefighting experience some of whom have actually been arson investigators that these fires present to them something that they have never been trained to experience they have never been educated about and in many cases, they did not know people could burn up in this fashion until it happened to them when they witnessed it with their own eyes. And then they hear about us and we contact them and say, yep, it's weird, this is bizarre, it's frightful, and as you said in your beginning, it can be incredibly terrifying. And yet it happens, but they're unprepared to deal with it. That This is something that's outside the, the normal training of a, of a fire service curriculum. Is there anybody, uh, universities, or any place doing research on this? Um, interesting question. We've been privileged over the last 20 or so years to, to be a guest lecturer every spring at Harrisburg Area Community College here in Harrisburg. Um, Don Conkle, who is the former fire chief of Harrisburg, knows about our research, gives it high respect, and has us come in and, and lecture at the college level. We are not aware of any professor who's doing actual constructive research into the subject. There are a lot of academicians who use their expertise to deny and debunk the subject, okay. but without anyone who's doing real constructive research in this country. There is an independent scientist in the UK who is doing some experimentation that we think has some credibility. Um, that's an ongoing process. Um, 
what is often suggested to explain away these phenomenal fire scenes is the human wick theory. And it's in which case the body is presumed to function like an inverted candle where the victim's clothing is the wick and the body's adipose tissue is the wax of the candle. And once an external ignition source ignites the clothing, then that provides the wick that fuels the adipose tissue, the fat in the person's body to slowly over many, many hours at a low heat combustion, turn itself to powder. When we began our research many decades ago, we thought, is this a credible theory? You know, we don't want to waste our time looking at something that does have a valid scientific explanation. We've done the experiment several times using ham shanks with bones. Um, in one case, we had soaked the, uh, the ham shank in a, in a marinade of vodka, brandy, and whiskey for a full year. So it was fully saturated, um, wrapped it in cloth, ignited it for the BBC, and after an hour, the flame extinguished itself, and we had 99.8% of the sample left on the linoleum that we had placed it on, all intact, didn't burn itself to powder, unlike Dr. Bentley did in his bathroom in 1966. Wow. Others who have done the experiment on television, we've actually caught them in, in, in scientific fraud. Um, if you have to lie about the success of your experiment when it has utterly failed, your, your experimentation, in fact, your reputation has no merit. Interesting, very interesting. And you wrote, obviously you did all this research and, and wrote a book. Who did you end up interviewing? Because obviously there's no, there's never been survivors of this, right? Um, incorrect. Okay. There are survivors, yeah. Now, obviously the survivors are not the classic case of spontaneous human combustion. We can't interview a pile of ashes. Right. Uh, but, there, but there are people who have uh, experienced first, second, third, and even possibly a fourth degree burn injury and have lived to tell us about their incredible experiences. So yes, spontaneous human combustion can be survived. It has been eyewitnessed. And all that whole subset of the phenomenon just throws the bunkers into a tizzy because you're left with either having to ignore the testimony, find a way to discount it, or simply call them call these people liars. Can and you tell us a story point, about somebody yeah. that that survived? Sure, absolutely. Okay. The the first gentleman that we had the privilege to interview, who we believe experienced and survived partial spontaneous human combustion, is Jack Angel. His story begins in November of 1974. He was a traveling clothing salesman. He worked out of his motor home. It was a showroom on wheels, if you will. He was down in Georgia, had, had an appointment to meet with a client um, following morning, parked his motor home the previous night at the Ramada Inn in Savannah, uh, I think it was Savannah, Georgia. Don't hold us to that moment, it's been a couple of years. Um, expecting to get up the following morning and have breakfast and go meet with his client. He missed the appointment. When he came to, he realized that his right forearm was burned black, charred to the bone. Yet he felt no pain. His pajamas were not singed. The sheeting on the bed in his motorhome was not burnt. He got up, got himself dressed, exited the motorhome, went into the Ramada Inn, and then fainted. When he regained consciousness, he found himself in the Savannah General Hospital, surrounded by a team of physicians, perplexed about how their patient could have burned to the extent that they were looking at. Skeptics have said that Jack Angel had um, was fiddling around with the water 
plumbing in his motor home and that these were scalding burn injuries. They are not scalding burn wounds. Besides the severe third, perhaps fourth degree burn that Jack had on his right forearm, he also had internal body damage. He had almost explosive type exit wounds in the right side of his chest. Several discs in the spinal column had fused. Uh, prior to this event, he had no problems like that. Afterwards, he did. And he also had um, burn injuries on his groin, on the nape of his neck, and in other parts of his anatomy. And yet there was no identifiable burn evidence anywhere inside the motorhome. Physicians attending him said that the best way to explain it for them was that he had been somehow burned electrically from the inside out, that these were burns internal in origin. That is a direct quote from the medical records that we have for Jack's, for Jack's medical treatment. That's... To his dying day, he told us that, that um, as we sat down with him, um, the burn injury to his right forearm was so severe that he elected to have the uh, forearm amputated, uh, as opposed to going through very painful and probably not successful reconstructive surgery. We can, we can, to this day, remember sitting in front of Jack discussing this event with him, and he, he holds his right forearm up and waves the stump of his right forearm at us and says, Larry, the only thing that makes any sense to me is that I burn by spontaneous human combustion. I don't know why, I don't know how, I can't explain it, but it's the only thing that made sense to him, and it's the only thing that makes sense to us, given all the evidence that we've amassed at that, for that particular case. Oh my gosh, that's incredible! Yeah, I've never heard. I'll have to read your book. I've oh, never heard. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of anybody that that survived it. You you always see the photos of the people that don't survive. Yeah, yeah. As earlier said, well, you know, a lot of the cases in our book ablaze would have been lost to history had we not doggedly pursued a lead that brought us to them. We we devoted a full chapter to Dr. Bentley here in Pennsylvania. We devoted a full chapter to Mary Reeser. In fact. Um, hold this up this is our file this is our file on wow. Mary Reeser just one case um, skeptics say that we're a mystery monger a mystery monger isn't going to create that kind of research on one case you know mm -hmm. we're looking for we're, we're looking for the evidence we're looking for the truth we're looking for the facts wherever they lead us and in case after case after case they've led us to the inescapable conclusion that albeit as rare as the phenomenon is, people do on occasion experience and succumb to, or as in the case of Jack Angel and several dozen other people, survive spontaneous human combustion. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Now, how long did it take you to research this book? Because, I mean, it must have been this just in, an incredible amount of stuff that you had to yeah. follow up on. Yeah, it did. Um, we have we have no idea how many hours we have devoted to this subject. Um, we began doing serious research in the early 70s by going to the Library of Congress first, and then we went to the College of Physicians in Philadelphia, um, pulling up cartload after cartload after cartload of European medical texts that had we had to literally blow the dust off the tops of the books. They had clearly not been opened in decades plowing through volume after volume after volume, looking for cases and finding them. Um, the, the case that we devote a full chapter to in our book about George Mott, a retired firefighter in upstate New York in 1986, would have probably been lost to history had we not doggedly pursued it. A case, another case here in Pennsylvania, Helen Conway, um, met her incredible flaming fate in 1964. Um, 
definitely would have been lost to history. Um, the, the fire department um, either lost or destroyed or just threw out the file when they were moving to a new fire facility. And had we not gotten there before that happened and met with the uh, three senior fire officials involved in that particular case, the world would never know about it. We devote a whole chapter to Mrs. Conway in our book, um, an astonishing case as are so many of these cases. When you say we, who are we talking about? <laughs> you're talking about, you're, you're talking to and you're listening to and you're speaking with the gentleman that you're seeing on, on the split screen. It's a personal reference. We refer to ourselves in the first person. Plural. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you said that you get tips on these things. Uh, what else do you have to do? Do you have to go through, I mean, spend like hours and hours at like libraries going through newspaper clippings, you yeah. know, to pick up on this stuff? Yeah. We do that. Our research involves archival research, um, looking through current and old newspaper archives. Um, it's very, and, and talking to um, first responders when we get a possible tip. Uh, we have a network around the planet. People know of our particular interest and fascination with fire phenomena. So if they come up with something, bless, bless them, they, they contact us and then we follow up. Um, when we come to go to a new town to lecture or just to, to vacation, we'll, we'll make a point to stop in the local fire departments. Hi guys, um, this is what we do. Um, it may sound strange to you, but here's a photograph. If you've never seen a case like this and you probably haven't, can you explain this fire scene to us? And invariably they say, oh my God, what the hell happened here? I've never seen a fire like this. Tell me something about it. And of course we ask them, have you heard about a case in your jurisdiction or maybe in your own fire training, have you heard a colleague talk about a case like this? And so we, we need to know about it because we're going to try to track it down. Coming to try to, to grips with this phenomenon, both historically is one of our goals to document it for science, but also to try to understand how this happens so that it can be prevented in the future. Because mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of science you to understand at some point. So we do archival work, we do first-hand interviews, we have a network of colleagues around the planet that we, we communicate with about this phenomenon. And sometimes it's just pure serendipity and luck that we find that about a case. And, and that happened with the Conway case in Philadelphia. We were one of the, perhaps the first non-firefighting civilian who was granted access to attend an advanced arson course here in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Fire Academy. And at the end of that course, the instructor Buzz Trebold said um, to all of the students, hey, I just, I just got these photographs of this person that some people say died by spontaneous human combustion. It's a woman, she was sitting in a chair, and we, we, we turned to one of our fellow students and said, oh, that's, that's the Reeser case. That happened in St. Pete in 1951, yada, yada, yada. As the photographs were being passed around the room, well, when the photograph ended up in our hand, we're looking at it and said, oh my God, this isn't very Reeser. It's a different fire scene. So as we went off immediately after, at the end of the class to Buzz and said, Mr. Trebold, who, when, where you know we want to find out about this case and mr Trebolt says well i just got the photograph all i know is that it happened somewhere in southeastern pennsylvania there's not enough duct tape to wrap around our head at that moment because south central pennsylvania is basically philadelphia the most popular populous part of our state millions of people down there we have no name no date how are we going to track down? How are we going to discover how this, who this lady is and, and when it happened and who we might be able to talk to next about the case? 
Shortly after that, we had the opportunity to meet with Dr. Krogman involved in the research case. Dr. Krogman was willing, um, if you're something in the background, that's our automatic cat feeder. <laughs> Call him the cat it's feeder. That might be food. <laughs> I got um, a dog in here with me too, so, you know. <laughs> Okay. We, wanted to, we wanted to talk to Dr. Krogman about the Weezer case, um, uh, an update, because this was now back in the, in the um, mid-70s. Weezer had happened in 51. We wanted to know what he thought 25 years later about the Weezer case. He didn't want to talk to us about it. In fact, he had, at this point, written off the case as a smoking mishap, which is just utterly bizarre. But anyway, um, we persisted, we finagled, and we got to sit down with Dr. Krogman to talk about his medical career, which is quite fascinating. He actually worked with Elliot Ness at one time. Um, but we eventually steered the conversation around to Mrs. Weiser, and um, he proceeded to tell us why she had um, simply dropped a cigarette on her lap and burned up that way in a, in a slow heat smoldering fire, which is just, you, you could have seen the lower jaw hit the floor when he told us that because it just belied everything that he had written 25 years earlier about the case and when he found it so mysterious and called it macabre beyond belief but anyway he then he turns to us and you know arnold i i just got this envelope from from some guy down outside of philadelphia and um he he handed it to us we pulled out the photograph and it was the same photograph we would seen a couple weeks earlier at the pennsylvania fire academy there was a there was an address and a name on the envelope. You bet we copied it down and we started to pursue it. It still took eight, it took us a total of nine months to track down this case, but we found it. And it was worth every hour that we spent doing so because the Conway case, aside from fitting the hallmarks of classic spontaneous human combustion, nailed down one of the most perplexing and difficult aspects of this very difficult and challenging topic, and that is the time element. Um, John DeHaan, one of the um, naysayers of SpawnCom who advocates fiercely for the Wick effect, mm -hmm. says that all these victims that Larry and history labels as SHC are really low temperature smoldering fires that take five to seven, five to seven to 12 hours um, to ash in the body. A number of problems with that. The first one is in the Conway case, we don't have five, for seven or 12 hours. Talking to the three senior fire officials who responded to that fire call in uh, November of 1964 on a Sunday morning, from the time that Mrs. Conway was known to be alive until the time the fire department got the call and arrived to a fire scene where there was no fire to put out, the time is six minutes. Wow. 300 360 seconds, give or take a few. We have nailed that down with the person who took the fire photographs, Bob Meslin. Wow. There is no way to explain this. Even John Mahan says, I can't explain that time frame. There has to be something else to it. And his something else is that the six minutes has to be wrong. She had to be smoldering all over, you know, overnight. There is no evidence whatsoever to support that contention. That's incredible because you That's know during my my working yeah. career I you know I, I was on hand for uh, cremation, mm -hmm. and it takes a lot longer than six or seven minutes to cremate exactly. a body. Exactly, this is this is perfect segue. Um, another problem with the Wick effect: if the Wick effect really does explain away these cases that history has labeled spontaneous human combustion that we like to call now sudden human cremation. If this can be explained away by 
an external drop cigarette, um, then why do crematorium owners who may spend $100,000 on a retort and purchase 40 or 50 gallons of fuel oil or a million and a half cubic feet of natural gas to cremate a cadaver inside a retort if it was so easy to burn up a body, they would simply take a lit cigarette, lay it on the customer, if you will, mm-hmm. walk away, have a leisurely lunch, come back in maybe an hour and a half, and find a nice pile of powder that they could scrape off the slab into the urn and give it to the next of kin. There's a reason they don't do that. There is a reason that they spend $100,000 on a retort and filters and licensing and permits and all kinds of stuff because you can't under normal, non-conventional conditions burn a body in a retort to the extent that Dr. Bentley and Helen Conway and the retired firefighter in upstate New York, George Mott, and Mises Reeser burn themselves in an environment that is the opposite of what you find inside a crematorium retort. Mm, That's incredible. Hey guys, I've got some photos that Larry gave me, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time. Um, they're graphic, but uh, if you got, you know, whoever wants to step away from the from the TV or whatever you're watching this on is more than welcome. But it's uh, I put together a short little presentation, but uh, it's not that long. But this will give you an idea of what Larry's talking about. If we have an audio, that was Dr. Bentley. This is Helen Conway. The six-minute marble. This is Mrs. Reeser. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And frightening. It, it is frightening. Um, It's frightening, particularly to the fire service community, because this is something, as we said earlier, they are not trained to experience. They are not taught that these fires can happen. In fact, we we met with and and interviewed extensively both a fire chief and a crematorium operator, one and the same. We think he's got a paired profession that is unique in this country, probably in the world. And as a professional firefighter with more than two decades of experience and the operator of a crematorium, he had no idea until we showed up at his fire station that individuals like you just showed your audience, um, Dr. Bentley, then Mrs. Conway, then Mrs. Reeser, could burn to that extent under those conditions. This was all new to him, and he's a professional firefighter. Do you, um, you know, you've done all this study. Do you see any patterns in, in, in what's happening to people? We wish we could answer that affirmatively across the board because it would make understanding whatever is the process behind these amazing conflagrations easier to understand and more simple to explain. Other than that, these fires involve human beings. There's mm-hmm. not much commonality to them. As you said earlier, the, um, the elderly are more prone to this. Uh, males and females, however, are equally represented in the database. This can mm-hmm. happen in almost any human activity. It can happen while you're sleeping. 
while you're driving, while you're sitting on a chair, watching television perhaps, um, while you're walking down the street. Um, the only human activity we have not found associated with SponCom is, shall we delicately say, amorous activities. Interesting. Can, we have found a pattern, however, with location. And we, this is, we devote a full chapter in our book of Blaze to the cartography of combustion. Where you are or where your property, your house is at a particular time may make it or yourself more incendiarily hazardous, more inflammable than, than any place else. We have more cases per capita in the United Kingdom. Um, it was a good place to test a theory. Is there a pattern to these fires? We plotted all the cases that we had on the map of the UK in 1975-1976 and looked for patterns. What we discovered is that many of these cases can be connected by straight alignments, um, four, five, six, and one case that roughly parallels the east coast of the United Kingdom, perhaps as many as a dozen cases of pyrophenomena that can be linked by a straight alignment, kind of like along the concept of ley lines that link megaliths um, across the landscape. But in this case, we're dealing with a different set of alignments that link strange fires. Statistically, that is incredibly significant and raises some really interesting questions about the location of strange fires as well as other Fortean phenomena. If the test of a theory's validity is will it lead you to predicted anticipated findings, then the cartography of combustion theory stands up extremely well because in two journeys to the United Kingdom after we created the Fireline map, um, which is in our book ablaze. We went to first to Lincolnshire up in northeastern uh, part of England because there was a locus of or loci of fire, strange fires up in there, that area. And we met with the fire brigade commander for Lincolnshire and sat down with him and said, you know, introduce yourself. This is why we are here. Might you have any cases, any historical records of, of pyrophenomena in your jurisdiction? And Mr. Shenton's first response was, well, nope, haven't heard about that, don't think about it. But then he pushed himself away from his desk, and as we sat there watching him, you could almost visualize the gears in his brain trying to pull up some information. Brought himself back up to his desk, leaned over to us and said, well, you know, a couple years ago, we had this really strange fire that I'd forgotten about, but now that you've brought it back to memory, an evolved a hermit living in literally a, a, a tinderbox of a shack out in the countryside um, had oil-based paper as window glass. He lived in an environment, um, stacks of newspaper um, that structured a little canyon of, a, of an aisle that he would, use, he would walk through in his home. Neighbors hadn't seen him for a couple of days, called the authorities. They went out, couldn't find him, came back out of the house and said, you know, he's got to be outside somewhere. They looked around the property, couldn't find him. The neighbors said, we haven't seen him outside. He's got to be in the house. They went back in multiple times and finally discovered that they were literally walking through the ashes of the gentleman who lived in this tinderbox of a shack. The ashes were between stacks of unburned newspaper this classic Spawncom fire scene. That we discovered that case only by following the fire lanes that we plotted years earlier on this map. The other case that that, that helps to verify the the, the um, significance of 
the alignments of strange fires happened in, in Wales in 1980 to a gentleman named Henry Thomas. When we heard about the case, he was said to live in Ebervale, Wales. Had no idea, never heard of Ebervale, Wales. But before going to a gazetteer, we decided to pull out our map and follow the alignments that we had previously plotted that went through Wales. And one of those alignments fell on this little insignificant hamlet called Ebervale. Wow, we were impressed. Um, actually, I ended up going to that site, stood in the room where, where Mr. Thomas burned himself to powder. Um, so, the pattern for the cartography of combustion as a theory, I think, has, has a lot of um, promise to it. I'm trying to explain at least some of these very bizarre fire phenomena. That's fascinating. I'm thinking, you know, I'm just wondering about maybe a, some kind of electrical impulse, too, within the mm -hmm. body. Because my mother had a habit of um, having a lot of static electricity in her body where she would touch doorknobs and get a shock or, or she'd touch laundry and get a shock. And I wonder if that is kind of like a link to that. Maybe that's what these people have. Yeah. It, it might well be. Problem is, with the fatal cases, obviously there's, no, there's nobody to, to mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't, right. can't interview the, the, the deceased in the case. Um, one of the things that makes our research so difficult and so challenging and at times very frustrating is trying to get enough information from the next of kin about these victims. Were they on particular medications? Did they have a medical history that would suggest some kind of thermogenesis anomaly in their bodies? Um, were they supermenopausal? Um, did they have some kind of aberrant electrical phenomena? Because most of these fires suggest to us that these are not oxidizing combustions. These are bioelectrical um, phenomena, at least, or some other kind of quasi-electrical energy. So the point that you, you, you raise has a lot of merit to it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's been very, very difficult to get this kind of background of the victims from the next of kin. Um, the most recent case we'd stick our research on happened in 2013 in Oklahoma. We went there, spent several days with the local fire authorities brilliant people, very savvy, very knowledgeable, and completely bumfuddled by this particular fire in their midst. We desperately wanted to meet with the next of kin to find out as much information as tactfully and gently and politely as we possibly could, because obviously this is a difficult subject to deal with, even if you're just looking at it theoretically from a distance, but when you're dealing with the next of kin to whom something as bizarre as, bizarre as SHC has happened, one must be very delicate, very careful, very cautious, and very sympathetic. We actually got the next of kin. Um, the brother of the victim had agreed to meet with us. We were actually on route to meet with him when we got a phone call saying, eh, I've changed my mind, don't come. Well, we went anyway and, and hoped the face, face, a face-to-face -face would change his mind, but it did not. So there was a lot that we could have learned about that case, but we just were denied the opportunity to do so. So the research continues and we have to at this point just speculate um, what may be the factor or factors involved in these amazing human incinerations. You know as a newspaper reporter that is one of the hardest things to do if, if, if a child has drowned if someone's been murdered someone passed, you know something happens to somebody and you you know it's always the assignment go out you know interview the, the relatives. That's got to be that is one of the hardest things to do. Like you say, you have to be very delicate about it. And a lot of them are hostile. They don't want to talk to you. And when you did when when, you, when the subject is fire and, 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 and death by fire, most people's 
reaction is this must have been a very painful experience for the for the deceased. That's common sense, and uh-huh. that that makes them all the more reluctant, reticent to discuss it with anyone, even with family members, alone an outsider like herself. Uh, but again, with with this subject, there is so much that is atypical and non-commonsensical, if you will, about this subject. Uh, aside from the the presence of either no odor or a sweet redolent scent in so many of these cases that are classic. Um, there's no indication to us, certainly from the survivors and the eyewitnesses, but also from the position of some of the deceased bodies where the, there's actually a fair amount of anatomy left. There's no indication to us that these people have experienced the kind of agonizing pain that one would normally associate with exposure to an open oxidizing fire. So this phenomenon, again, is either so quick, as it likely was in the Conway case, that Uh there's no opportunity for the nervous system to transmit pain signals to the brain, or the process doesn't involve the transmission of pain signals to the brain, period. Or maybe it just simply burns through the nerve endings and that takes care of that, you know, right right away. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's where it starts, actually, is in the nerve somewhere. Again, the cases there, there are cases where it appears that uh, in, in, in the survivor case of, of Jack Angel, the burns to his forearm were clearly internal, but in, in the classic cases, the, the loci of combustion of the energy that consumes the body appears to originate in the solar plexus area, the lower abdominal region of, of the victim. Um, that clearly was not the case with Jack Angel. Uh, clearly, it's not the case with most of the survivor cases. Um, Again, because there's no definitive clear pattern. Again, one of our critics says, "Larry, the problem with your cases is that you've got them, the, the, you've got them all over the all over the place." Well, well, sorry, but that's just what the evidence presents to us. That's what history shows. You know, mm-hmm. not not everybody is allergic to um, hayweed. Not everybody is six foot two and weighs 173 pounds. You know, human bodies are very different. Why should we expect everybody to? had the same criteria um, that ends up um, being defined as, as a case of spontaneous human combustion. That just doesn't make sense to us. Our, our, our mind is broader than that. You'd think with modern science, you know, and how far we've come, you know, when you look at the early cases of this, all the way up to present day, you'd think that there'd be some kind of headway, but there really isn't because by the time, like you say, by the time you, you get to the bodies, they're, they're ashes. Yeah. Um, in, in the George Mott case, um, yeah, the, the retired firefighter in upstate New York, meticulously careful about fire as a retired firefighter, um, that was to be expected. Uh, non-smoker for at least a decade, and yet managed in, in late November, I'm sorry, late March of 1986 to burn himself down, not up, but down to his mattress, through the bed springs, through the wood planking underneath the bed and into the crawl space below the bed. We stood in Mr. Mott's bedroom. We could extend our arm and touch the ceiling above the bed. It was six feet tall, so you could, the ceiling was just a little, about seven and a half feet up. We could touch the ceiling. Not a scorch mark on the ceiling above the point of the fire, again, in air quotes, that consumed his body downward to his bed and into the crawl space below. Uh, most of the, the 
the vectors of these blazes appears to be inward and downward, not upwards. Um, and in the Mott case, no odor at the fire scene whatsoever. Um, the irony of his case was that his ashes were scraped up from the crawl space below. His remains consisted of half of his lower right leg that was still on the burning through mattress. Um, dry powder, and a head that was said to have shrunken in size by about 25%, which is reminiscent of Mary Weiser's head that also was said to have shrunken dramatically in size. Again, this is not what happens in any conventional fatal fire. Uh -huh. But Mr. Mott's ashes were, were scooped up, put in a box, and taken to the Burlington Crematorium where they were recremated, if you will. Um, and then those ashes, recremated ashes, were buried at sea. So we don't have any material left to, to try to analyze from, from that fire scene. But the, the irony is that as we as we talked to the crematorium operator in Burlington and said, have you ever gotten a body like this before? Uh, no. He said, you didn't have much to do with it, did you? Uh, no, we didn't. But we were asked to cremate it, so they cremated ashes and, you know, away with Mr. Mott. The, the authorities in that case, um, Bob Purdy, who was the emergency preparedness director for Essex County, and his fire investigator, Tony Moret, both brilliant men, um, both concluded um, after spending hundreds of hours of investigating that particular fire, and we ourselves spent about 750 hours on our own time working with them to try to understand what happened to Mr. Mott in 1986. Their conclusion collectively is that the best explanation for Mr. Mott's demise is spontaneous human combustion, and they both went on the record. Huh. Now, the people that survived, do they feel anything beforehand? I mean, do they feel, you know, sweaty or anything beforehand to indicate that something was going on? Great question. Um, Jack Angel slept through his um, third or fourth degree burn to his right forearm without any pain whatsoever. Um, awakened to complete befuddlement. Um, other victims, other survivors tell us that they may... may um, experience a, a mild tingling sensation or a very low level of heat in the part of the body. Um, the tingling, they, they've likened it to what happens in your forearm when you, you know, cut off circulation. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing akin to the pain that you would expect to experience had you just put your hand on a hot stove burner, for example. Um, Peter Jones, who tells us that twice in one day in October 1980, his body went up in smoke experienced no pain, no forewarning whatsoever. Um, the first time it happened to him, his wife Barbara was in bed beside Mr. Jones when both of them witnessed his body becoming engulfed in a whitish uh, cloud of smoke that seemed to originate um, from his groin or lower abdominal area. Um, that fits the definition of spontaneous hu human combustion, which mm -hmm. for us is the blistering, smoking, or burning of a human body in the absence of a known, identifiable, nearby external burn agent. Wow, that's that's just I can't can't I just can't wrap my head around it. I just can't. You know, <laughs> it the, is hard. It is hard, and that that's another problem that we have with our research because when we talk to the professionals, people have spent decades in the fire service, and many of them think they know everything there is to know about fire. And for those that do, that's that's a that's going to get you in some trouble someday. Um, 
but when we try to present the evidence to them you guys are the professionals you know this is what we found this is what we've been told can you help us maybe you know something that we haven't come across that will help everyone understand how best to explain these fires these remarkable fire scenes unfortunately again and again and again we get the response is that's too frightening to think about i not only don't know anything about this but i don't want to know anything about it when we went down to the national fire academy in emmitsburg maryland uh, just prior to publication of a book to wrap up any loose ends that we might have we, we met with the three senior on-duty fire instructors that day one of them said i've heard about this but i really don't want to know anything so and he walked away the second gentleman we encountered in the hallway we tried to hand him the photograph of dr bentley and he looked at it and said ah don't want to know anything about that and he literally ran away from us down the hallway astonishing as that was happening a gentleman who turned out to be the third senior instructor that day walked by us he, he stopped paused around looked at the photograph and said i've heard about this i don't know about it come into my office and tell me everything you know well we didn't have enough time to tell him everything we know but we had a really good discussion with with mr Kuntz about these fires that he didn't know about but he was interested in mm -hmm. learning more that's the kind of attitude that we need in our research to encounter to help everyone make sense of all the cases that we've documented and brought to the public's awareness in our book of blaze because until mainstream science works with us to try to understand the processes that are involved to explain these remarkable fire scenes these things are going to continue to happen People are going to continue to die, and the mystery is going to continue to remain buried and hidden. This is a medical phenomenon that deserves widespread attention. What do, um, if you talk with any coroners, what do the coroners think? Because, I mean, they're the ones that, that get stuck with the last, I hate to yeah. say it, the last leg, guys, but I mean, you know, yeah. The, the death certificates with, which coroners and medical examiners sign off on um, is a fascinating subset of, of our research. Um, Invariably, they were right off in the death certificate that these deaths are asphyxiation um, attendant with somewhat severe burn injuries. Um, we're almost quoting verbatim Dr. Bentley's death certificate. The problem is, unless you have a trachea or an esophagus or lungs, you can't make a medical determination of asphyxia. And in, in, in the Bentley case, uh, the Reeser case, the Mott case, there were no internal organs left. There was no trachea left to autopsy. You cannot prove it. You cannot make a determination of asphyxiation without those body components to analyze. Um, as, as Jack Stacy told us, he was a fire brigade commander in London who actually witnessed a fatal SHC case institute along with this fire crew um, that victim was was robert bailey we devote several pages to him in our book of blaze uh, jack stacy witnessed a jetting flame with force his words with force emitting from the abdomen of, of robert bailey blue in color which is the the color of the fire that witnesses most often report in in cases that fit the definition historically of spontaneous human combustion in that case, again, the, the, the medical examiner in the UK wrote off the death as asphyxiation, but as Jack Stacy said, I'd rather call it unknown. 
as the cause of death. And we have no quibbles with that at all. That's an honest determination. Um, rather than write these cases off as a situation. Because That's... That, Go ahead. It, it, it makes our research all the more difficult because these cases are difficult to, to, to identify in the first place. Um, when they're written off, in fact, we, we have the, um, the headline that, from the newspaper that describes Dr. Bentley's death in 1966. Here's the opening sentence from the newspaper that provided, this is the, the, the leading story in, in the edition of the Potter Enterprise for that week. The charred body of Dr. J. Irving Bentley, 92, was discovered in a smoldering fire Monday morning in the bathroom of his Main Street home in Countersport. Well, it wasn't a charred body. It was a powdered to ash body. It wasn't smoldering. When the first responder discovered the fire, it wasn't smoldering. There were some cherry embers around the hole through which the body had immolated, but it was not a smoldering fire. So looking at that, and if we and we got the death certificate for Dr. Bentley that says he died by asphyxiation um, with 90, 90% burning to the body, you think, okay, this is a structure fire, probably a smoking mishap. Lots of people die every year in America by smoking mishap incidents, unfortunately. But once we talked to the first responders, and once we got the photograph of Dr. Bentley, this is no conventional fire scene whatsoever. This is bizarre. This is as freakish as a fire can get. But without getting a lead from an insider up in Potter County, a local historian, we would never have discovered the case and would never have investigated the energy and the time and the effort to find those first responders. Even Dr. Bentley's son did not know how his dad died until he was watching a program in 1980 called That's Incredible on ABC television, right. in which we debuted for the first time on television the remarkable fire death of Dr. Bentley. Until that time, even Dr. Bentley's son did not know how his dad had, had perished. So imagine you think your dad dropped the pipe on his lap and sadly, mm -hmm. you know, burned himself slowly um, and was put in a, in a grave. And watching television and, and discovering, my God, this is how dad died. I had no idea but that that's what happened. Um, so these cases, because of officialdom's displeasure and disdain and dismissal of the entire concept of SHC, makes research for people like us incredibly difficult. We know there are more cases that have happened that we simply have not been able to identify. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, the gentleman that, that caught fire with his wife laying beside him. Have there been other witnesses that, that have seen people catch fire? Yes, yes, quite a few. Um, there's a full chapter in, in A Blaze that deals specifically with the subset of eyewitness cases. As we said, in most of the eyewitness cases, the color of the fire, again in air quotes, we prefer to use in this context the energy that envelops the victim is described as bright, translucent, like electric arc welding blue. There are colors reported of, of blue-green, silver, argent, um, red, copper red, um, from Mrs. Picoque, who burned through her ceiling in Limerick, Ireland back in 1760, if memory serves correctly. Um, but most often the eyewitness re reported this, this bright, blue colored energy that envelops the body and it happens very quickly and without an identifiable external ignition source 
And again, bodies don't burn blue under normal circumstances. How are they able to get the fires out? Um, in one case involving a Mr. Hischel from England, if memory serves in 1613 or 1631, somewhere around that period, um, a bystander attempted to, using common sense, thought if I shake the victim who's enveloped in this bright light fire, um, maybe it'll go out. Well, it did. But Mr. Herschel spent, according to the records, 13 days thereafter in intensely agonizing pain, the kind of pain that you would expect if it had been a conventional oxidizing fire, third degree oh. burn injury, uh, before he finally succumbed to his injuries. Um, in the case of Bailey, um, Jack Stacy and his crew dumped the contents of several fire extinguishers into Mr. Bailey's gut to put out the blue flame that they witnessed. Uh, because Mr. Bailey was already dead when the crew arrived, we had wished that Mr. Stacy and his crew would have just stood there and watched to see what nature would have allowed to unfold, uh, to see whether the body of Mr. Bailey would have eventually been completely consumed to powder or something else would have happened. So, I mean, what I'm getting at is that if you're sitting across from somebody that catches fire like that mm -hmm. i guess water is not going to do the trick actually in, in one case or two cases in our book we the the, the records state that water was doused on the victim and it actually acerbated accelerated the porosity of the fire as opposed to quenching an oxidizing type of fire which is why, that's why firemen like water so much it, it lowers the heat of combustion it tends to put out a oxidizing type flame but in this phenomenon which behaves very differently than an oxidizing type fire um, the presence of water seems to um, be not the thing but that makes sense that. because if you're dealing with fat with with fat you know it, it's it, 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 it's like a it, it's like oil spill fire mm -hmm. on the ocean right it's just going to mix it up and, and just thin it out and it goes even further that's mm -hmm. crazy it's crazy. Yep, the whole subject crazy. I give you a lot also, of credit. Also fat. Uh, we, you know, we we've looked at um, forensic texts, toxicology reference books, and and the photographs in many of those texts can be incredibly gruesome. But there is there. We'd rather look at a case of we'd rather look at the photographs of Dr. Bentley or Mrs. Reeser than look at the photographs of a normal foreign victim. Because in a normal burn victim, you can see that this was a fire that had to be incredibly painful unless the person previously expired. Um, but as we said, in, in cases that fit the definition of the construct of SHC, um, there, there appears to be no pain involved. So the concept is horrific mm -hmm. and, as you say, terrifying and frightful. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, if, if there's a way to go that doesn't involve pain and that is quick, um, SHC might be the way to choose. Interesting, interesting. My gosh, this hour has just blown. You know, I'm just so, it's just been so fascinating to talk to you. I mean, like, like everybody else, I grew up in the uh, era when there wasn't a lot of TV about this stuff. You know, it was the in search of, it was the unsolved mystery people, you know, that, that you saw. And like you say, you know, there wasn't a lot of this on. You know, and then in books that I came across growing up, you might get maybe half a chapter or something with a photo. 
you know, about this information. And it's, it's just great that, that you're bringing this out. You know, it's great that you're doing that, that you've done all this research on it. You know, at some point, they're going to come up with an answer. Thank you. You, you honor us with that comment. Um, it's, been, it's been our goal. Um, as we said, we, we have an iconoclastic background. Um, we like to look at things that are strange and outside the conventional box. But we do so from a scientific, at least we say we do so from a scientific methodological background. Uh, we're not out here to mystery monger. We didn't make up the, these photographs that you showed to your listeners, your viewers, are not photoshopped. These are, we know the provenance of these photographs. They are mm -hmm. genuine historical documents. They're not fakes, as, as some of our critics have, have said. Um, when you say that spontaneous human combustion cannot occur because there has never been a case in which internal organs are destroyed more completely than external body parts, that comes from a forensic biologist. The cases that we've shared with you tonight disprove that contention and ergo verify that spontaneous human combustion, as bizarre and frightful and weird and freakish and gruesome as it is, does really happen. And we've, um, as we said, when, when we discovered the Bentley case, it was a life-changing moment and we've spent the last 40 plus years of our life traveling the world trying to discover, and when we do, then document as thoroughly as possible these amazing fire scenes, because there's a lot here for fire science and for medicine to come to terms with and to understand. Not everything is known yet about the human body, and this proves it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You're most and welcome. Thank you, Charlotte. If you want to tell people how to get your book. Yeah. The easiest way is to go to Amazon.com. The book is available there. If you would like a personal inscribed copy, you can email us at shchappens at gmail or go to the website parascience.com and contact us that way. And we'll be happy to um, fulfill an order, personally inscribe the book to you. It will be a rare first edition copy of the book. Um, and we can make a guarantee that almost no other author can confidently make. You buy this book. If you've not read it previously, if this is your first exposure to the book, we will guarantee that you will read about and learn things you heretofore did not know. That's a promise. Larry, thank you so much. And uh, you, I'd like to get you on at a later date and talk and talk more about this, you know. Cool. Um, you know, and um, again, thank you. And you have a good evening. Wow, I'm gonna, I'll have unpleasant dreams tonight, I'll tell you. <laughs> Take Thanks care. You, you've been you, a gem. We've enjoyed it very much. Good interview. Thank, Thank you. you. You have a good one. Okay, guys. Well, we learned a lot about spontaneous human combustion, and I know, uh, for one, it still scares me no matter what, no, no matter what I hear or read about it. Anyway, we are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, www.californiahaunts.org. If you like the show, share it with your friends. If you didn't like the show, share it with them anyway. We're looking for people to keep keep us going and keep us watching. As you can see by the bottom, I have a ticker running. Uh, we are a nonprofit team out of Sacramento, California, and uh, every little bit helps for equipment and to keep the show on like this. You know, to pay for the internet and and the service that we use to uh, send all this good stuff to you. And as Elvira would say, "Mistress of the Dark, unpleasant dreams." <laughs>